The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition. This is, in fact, the uh, last Q&A show being recorded for the year 2023. So we've got New Year's Eve right around the corner here. Many of you probably won't listen to this until after New Year's, but uh, so happy New Year's if you're doing that. If you happen to listen before, hope you have a good New Year's coming up because this show will release on the 30th of December 2023. So uh, Jim's piled up some good questions for us here for our final show of 2023. Um, I'm not sure what else to say. I've I've used up all of the all the things I normally would say at the beginning of a show in in this year. I have nothing left. So maybe we should just get directly into questions, or or maybe Jim can share with us any fun facts about what happened lately. Although I got an email the other day reprimanding me, Jim, for not correcting you on one of your little Jimisms when you said uh, something was selling like hot dogs. It uh, the phrase is selling like hotcakes, not hot dogs. So I guess I should bring that up and acknowledge that, yes, I heard him say that, but he was on a roll. So I, I didn't want to interrupt him, but I didn't, I did notice it. So you weren't the only one listener who noticed the, uh, the hot dog in replace in in place of the hot cake. Okay, so yeah, so. you had to just ruin the last show of the year for me that I screwed up something. Well, I wanted to acknowledge this astute listener's observation that yes, in fact, you did say that because I remember clearly you doing it, and I remember also clearly not interrupting you. So, so I have to admit, it was my fault for not jumping right on it. <laughs> And fixing well, you got to give me time. credit for getting half of it. I got well, the hot pot right. Yeah, the one that the listener didn't pick up on because they didn't mention it. I think it was that same show you talked about uh, killing two stones with one bird, uh, which <laughs> I believe you said today earlier to me on a private phone call as well. So um, I did it. No, no, no. You're getting this all mixed up today. You and I had a private phone call mm -hmm. before the recording folks Mm -hmm. where we were talking about the vision for the business in the coming year. Mm -hmm. And I almost almost said kill two stones with one bird. But I caught myself. Right. 
That's what you're thinking of. No, 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 no. You did this on a show because it reminded when you said it, it reminded. You would have never let that on a show go by. No, Bob. it was. Uh, I, I actually let a surprising number of Chris. them go by. <laughs> Just for the record. <laughs> on the same show that I said hot dog instead I, of hot cake. I think it was the same show. It was in the same. Did you if, let it go? Were you sick that day? Well, you know, it's, sometimes I'm, I'm appreciating the the rant you're on or the role or the, and it would just really disrupt the flow too much. I, I don't mind disrupting it a little, but sometimes it's, I just I have to pick my battles. We'll, we'll call it that. Wow. I had no idea. Well, I, I knew, I think I remember the hot dog. I think I even asked you, is it hot? And I couldn't, I couldn't think of what it was. So it's, but you're right. It's selling like hot cakes. My mind said hot dogs. For those who don't know, if you're relatively new listener to the show, Chris does not have a good mastery of the English language. So he often misspeaks, mispronounces things, screws up his imisms, and we call him Chrisisms. Um, and it's very nice. We, he takes it very sweetly. This isn't the April 1st show, just so you know. <laughs> So in this particular case, the Chris I'm describing is yours truly. But I have said this repeatedly. You don't listen to me to master the English language. I was with Rachel this morning before driving uh, here to record this show. And she is I, I was only laughing because the poor thing relies on me to teach her English. And <laughs> I'm trying my hardest, but I don't have the heart to tell her you're asking the wrong person. But she made a good point. She said to me today, she's trying to get things done. So how come you can say, how did she word it? Um, you can, you have to say smarter instead of more smart. No, not that. No, why is it bigger instead of more big? And then she continued and said, and why is it smarter instead of more smart? And I was like, I, I don't know, because apparently in Portuguese, it's not the way they talk. Mm-hmm. And she, yeah. she's trying to wrap her arms around that. And English is a I, terrible language. Let's, let's all just admit that. It is this crazy hodgepodge uh, <laughs> of things bolted together without a lot of logic and an insane amount of exceptions to rules. It's ridiculous. I pity everyone who tries to earn the English language as a second language. It's, I, I admire them and, and I've got pity cause it is a, it's a horrible thing. Well, she's doing well. She, she speaks English to the point where I can understand her for the most part. Um, she does mispronounce some words, but I think it's cute. Like she says mm-hmm. book instead of book. Hmm. And when she found out it's pronounced book, she is trying hard not to say book anymore. But I just find book so endearing. I, I told don't change. It sounds good when mm-hmm. you call it a book <laughs> instead of a book. But um, anyway, she does speak Portuguese fluently, Spanish, and English. So she, she's got me beat. I can't even speak English fluently. All right. Anyways, folks, this wraps up a nice 2023. I hope everybody enjoyed another year of listening to the Retirement and IRA show. We have... Uh, Every intention of continuing with the show well into the future. So next year, we'll keep doing the same thing in 2024, an EDU show, as well as a Q&A show. Hopefully, our uh, 
dialogue series that we like to do on the EDU show may even be live. Did you see the gentleman's email that I sent you with his suggestion, Chris? Yeah, people I, haven't, I haven't had the heart to tell you that your vision, as originally described, was likely not going to happen. But I am a huge Car Talk fan, and I think his proposed Car Talk show, for the NPR show Car Talk, which many of you probably remember... And I think it still technically goes on. It's not quite the same anymore since I think one of the brothers is gone. But um, they would prearrange the callers and kind of do their screening and, and set up ahead of the show so that they could pull it off during the show. And that's something I think we might be able to accomplish if we prearrange it and kind of have an idea of what they're interested in and so we can determine that it makes sense and all that kind of stuff. So... Um, Otherwise, we're going to need to hire a producer to to field calls and stuff like that, which isn't really practical for the way we do things. But yeah. Okay, so you might be able to pull it off. We got an yeah. email from a listener mm-hmm. who gave Chris – I got the email. I forwarded it to Chris mm-hmm. with a suggestion of, of doing what Car Talk did. I've never listened to Car Talk. I think what? they were from Boston, weren't they? But Wait a minute. I was never... Time out. You're from Boston, uh-huh. and you've never listened to Car Talk. No, no. Oh my gosh. I never ate a, a travesty. snail. No, I never ate a snail until yesterday either, and I'm sixty. So I, I I told you my girlfriend Rachel took me to Vale. We went up to Vale specifically to look around where she used to work. She worked in Vale when she first came to this country. And she was shocked that I had never eaten snails. So she wanted to take me to a restaurant she knew of in Vale that had escargot. And uh, let me just say, I don't know why people eat snails. And I, yours truly will never eat another snail for as long as he lives. There was just really nothing to it. But point, Chris, I didn't have my first snail until yesterday. So I've never been a car talk guy. Mm. You should look one up. I mean, they're your people. (laughs) They're your people and they're hilarious. Do they have gymisms? Uh, no, they have a very much a mastery of the English language just with a very thick Boston accent and of what I would call a Boston style sense of humor. Uh, and they very intelligent and talk about people call in with car problems and it's hilarious how they propose fixing it, but we don't need to get into that on our show, but you definitely should look it up. I I think you'd find it hilarious. What what radio station are they on? It's on NPR. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's on any. I think it is on it now. I don't listen to it now. It's I listen to the classic one. There were two brothers. I think one of the brothers died. Okay. Um, but there's classic shows. I know you can stream either at NPR or, or I'm sure on YouTube and places like that. They've got to have audio from those old shows. They're hilarious. All right, I'll listen to them. But anyways, okay. the point was someone said. We should do our EDU dialogue like the car talk guys. Yeah. So I forwarded it to Chris. I had no idea what he was talking about, but I forwarded it to Chris. Yeah. And you're saying we might be able to do the EDU dialogue like these two car talk dudes. Correct. So we'll work on that for 2024. Perfect. Well, there you go, folks. There's changes that are coming for 2024. All right. Enough of this bantering. Let's get into our... Uh, questions. The social security question, I'm going to jump to the top of the line. These people, Chris, are what I would call uh, friends of mine, uh, acquaintance friends. We met hiking years ago. Uh, I met, oh, 
Georgette, almost said her name, uh, and uh, her husband, George, um, on hikes. I met them separately, not together. And then eventually I put two and two together and realized that they were married to each other. But um, we did go on a, a walk. I wouldn't necessarily call it a hike. A walk around a local lake over the Christmas holiday season. And they were asking me about Social Security questions. And I kept saying, well, the, the guy in the office to talk to is a guy named Chris. I, I don't know Social Security like he does. And um, they sent me an email uh, shortly after that walk. And we're hoping I could read it to you, Chris, and you could answer the question. And I know we received some questions similar to this in the not-too-distant past. I just couldn't find any, but I know we got them. And it's about self-employed people trying to collect Social Security but not fall victim to the earnings test if they turn on their Social Security before their full retirement age. After their full retirement age, no harm, no foul. You can earn as much as you want. But prior to your full retirement age, you will lose some of your so well, I don't really even want to say lose. They they temporarily withhold it. They will give it back to you, although not in a lump sum. Chris can go on to explain if he'd like, but they will turn your the money they withheld, they'll give back to you over the course of your life once you reach your full retirement age. I'll let Chris explain how that works if, if it is germane to the, the question. So they sent me an email, and I'm going to jump them to the top of the list. First, they're friends, and second, I think it's a perfect thing to do. We can kill two birds mm. with one stone. The new question of the week and a social security question. Okay. See how it did that? Perfect. All right. It begins. Hi, Jim. There's no Chris in this. They're writing to me, not you. It was nice catching up on our walk this morning. I'm wondering if Chris, if this question would be appropriate to address on your podcast. I am self-employed as a relatively new realtor. This would be Georgette talking, Chris. Mm -hmm. I am self-employed. Excuse me. I am self-employed as a relatively new realtor. I started my Social Security at age 64 and a half this year in 2023. If I make more income than allowed in 2024, can the income go into an LLC and money be withdrawn to remain within my Social Security limits of income? For example... I predicted my income from sales to be low in the coming year based on low sales in 2022 and 2023. But if the market improves in 2024 and I earn more than the $21,000 allowed by Social Security, is the LLC I create with limited withdrawals of income an allowable solution. What she's looking to do, Chris, in her mind, mm -hmm. is run out and create a limited liability corporation. Somehow let that LLC be the recipient of all these real estate commissions. And if 2024 is a good year, she's not predicting it, but it, never know. And if it's a good year for her and she earns in sales commissions from, from her real estate work, if she earns more then the earnings limit for someone, 
if the money was inside an LLC and she doesn't pay it out to herself, would that be a workaround so she could continue to collect her Social Security and they don't withhold any of it because of the earnings test? She goes on to say that her husband, George, has also had his income drastically reduced in 2023. And he started his Social Security, not at his full retirement age, Chris, but at 65 and a half. He is doing small jobs periodically, but he too has the same question. Could the husband do something similar? Run his self-employed income through an LLC and just withdraw enough from it to stay within the earnings limit of Social Security and not lose any. Now, I know you're probably going to burst their bubble, but I wanted to set the stage on this for these people and for all our listeners who are going to try something like this. There's one huge issue with an LLC that she's not thinking of that I know of because I have an LLC, folks. It's an LLC, but we do an S-Corp filing on it. But irrespective of an S-Corp or an LLC, everything flows down to my tax return. Why don't you explain all that, Chris? Yeah, so there's a few issues with this. Um, First of all, an LLC stands for Limited Liability Company, not Corporation, uh, just as a minor correction. But an LLC, as you mentioned, is a what's called a tax pass-through entity. So it is not an entity that can hold income in it and shield it in some way, and then you dole it out later. Um, Your LLC that you're going to set up and have, if there's earnings from your real estate uh, that goes in there, um, it's going to flow onto you, um, essentially. So there's, I know there are certain accounting techniques you can use and, you know, that you might be able to simulate kind of some of what she's talking about. That's, uh, that's not really how it works. You, uh, that, that flows right onto your own tax return, which is what they're going to base your earnings on. They're going to look at that. And what gets complicated is for self-employed individuals, the rules are a bit different for the, for the earnings limit. Um, she mentioned a $21,000 limit. The good news is it's up a bit for 2024. It's actually $22,320. So she's got a little more cushion in there um, in order to be shielded from the earnings test. But when you're, when you're self-employed, they don't look at just the earnings because what they're worried about is that a lot of self-employed people have the ability to manipulate their income by maybe shifting income to others, especially if it's a family held business or something like that intentionally to try to get around to the earnings test. So when you are reporting self-employed income, they also want to know how much you're actually working in the business and, and they call it substant providing substantial service to the business. And they've got rules behind that, the general rules, and, and these get really kind of murky. There's the rules are complex and then uh, how the social security ends up judging you. There's, there's I think, a, a big subjective decision-making process on Social Security's end because they're going to take information from you. For instance, um, providing substantial services to the business is considered to be 45 hours a, a month or more. So even if you earn under the, say, the monthly limit, let's say you're taking advantage of the 
of the uh, grace year and you're having asking them to apply the earnings limit on a monthly basis, the monthly amount will be 1730 in 2024. But even if you say, I'm going to have less than that, or you report that you're going to have less than that, if you're self-employed, they're always also going to ask how much are you working at the business? How many hours a month? And if it's over 45 hours, uh, or if you are over 15 hours and are considered a highly skilled person, which a lot of self-employed business owners are going to fall into this category, if you have more than 15 hours of work, even if you're reporting less than the earnings limit, they're going to ask you for more documentation to let you off the hook. They're essentially going to say, we're going to ask you for things like the amount of time, who, you know, what other individuals work at the business, what type of business it is, uh, look at how you've reported income in the past from that business. They're going to um, you know, see if you've given up control of the business to others so that it's true that others are doing the work that you used to do. There's just all this investigation that they're going to do into these documents to, to ultimately decide, you know what? what they're how much they're working even though they only paid themselves maybe $1500 a month right to stay under the 1730 monthly limit the value of the work they're doing for this business is much much higher than that and we're going to deem it to be this fill in the blank and then they're going to apply the earnings test based on that number that's the subjective part that I'm talking about here uh, i i don't know that how they could ever come up with a number objectively for that. They're going to have to be making all kinds of assumptions and judgments on their end based on what you provide them to come up with this. So the bottom line is if you're going to try to, A, the simple manipulation she's talking about by running it through an LLC is not a a get-out-of-jail-free card. If that was the case, everybody would do it because it's super easy to set up an LLC. You could hide, quote, hide earnings inside there, uh, pay, dole them out when it doesn't matter. You know, the ultimate version of this would be to work, pile up the earnings in the LLC, and then pay them out to yourself after you reached your full retirement age when the earnings test wouldn't work at all. That clearly is not going to work. That's That, that, that uh, isn't a loophole that one could take advantage of. Um, but any other manipulations you're doing, like reducing your rate of pay so you stay under it, or claiming you're working less than you really are, so a lot of these other things, they're not necessarily going to just take your word for it. They're going to ask you for documentation to support what you're claiming, and then it's going to come down to their judgment if they accept it. So it can be challenging to deal with the earnings test as a self-employed person if, uh, um, you know, if you've made more in the past in particular and your business has been around for a while, you're going to have uh, a lot of explaining to do about why things have changed so that they can consider you retired, which is kind of what they're trying to do here is they, they only want to pay your full Social Security benefit to you if you truly are retired. Uh, when you're earning, they are going to cons- still consider you retired if you fall under these limits, once they consider you not retired, then your benefits are really in jeopardy as far as being paid to you. The good news is, like Jim mentioned, if they withhold any of your retirement benefits, this isn't true of auxiliary benefits like spousal or survivor benefits, but your own retirement benefit, if they ever reduce that due to application of the earnings test, 
they will then recalculate your Social Security benefit once you reach your full retirement age and give you credit for those months that they withheld effectively. And you'll start to receive a higher benefit then from that point forward uh, and you know, kind of recover what they withheld from you over a 10 to 15 year period uh, is usually how long it takes because they pay it back to you essentially over your life, you know, your expected life span uh, through a slightly higher benefit from that point forward. So they're not necessarily totally lost, but they're going to be, you know, trickled back out to you over a long period of time if you do fail the earnings test. So um, self-employed folks have a higher burden of proof to avoid the earnings test, I guess is the summary comment that I'll make here. Um, and her, I, I like her way of thinking. She was thinking outside the box, but uh, I, her approach is not not going to work. Yeah, and I'll add to that because I cannot manipulate my income because I have an LLC right. to qualify for ACA premium tax credits. So I can't say, because it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I can't say, oh, I'm not going to pay myself much this year. I want to get ACA premium tax credits. If I leave the money, Chris, in the business and don't actually pay it to myself as a salary, I still end up paying taxes on it because it yep. carries right over to my 1040. Right. So it, it, it's not going to work, uh, her, her thought. As you said, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Irma question. This one's fairly simple, I think. See if I can find it. There it is. Okay. See if he gave us a hint. Oh, yeah, I remembered this one. And I I guessed it. I knew what it was. And it angers me as an American that this is the county with the highest median income because it says a lot about the corruption of the U.S. government. How's that for a hint, Chris? He lives in the state which contains the county with the highest median income in the entire United States of America. Highest median income. Um... Oh, come on. My hint, I just gave it away. Well, that's a weird hint for where my mind would normally go. He continues because he sensed, I'm guessing this listener sensed your failure to understand history. He said, I'm not making this up. If Chris needs additional hints, you can tell him a few of the states that it is not. Because most people are going to think of these states. Mm -hmm. California, New York, Massachusetts, Washington State, and Texas. It is not those states. What? I mean, you just checked off the list of places that i would think of chris i gave it away when i said this should anger should anger everyone because it speaks volume of the corruption of the u.s government well then it's got to be something around washington dc so um there's only a few states that surround washington dc so maybe somebody in virginia someplace in virginia there you go virginia yeah, no, no way I would have gotten that without those hints. Now, I, I think you're, I mean, assuming it's due to corruption, there could be, it could be maybe a small physical 
like the size of the county isn't very big, so that you know it's easy to have a really high median income in that one particular spot. Um, Loudoun County, Virginia, right outside of Washington yeah. D.C., home to all of the probably lobbyists and stuff, lobbyists yeah. and corrupt politicians and all the other crap. That's your government hard at work, folks. <laughs> Loudoun County, Virginia, right outside of Washington, highest median income in the U.S. of A. All right, let's get to his. Well, I just looked it up. It's not an offensive. Median household income in Loudoun County is one hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars. That's because there's a couple of poor, like, hotel workers that are taking care of all the the politicians, Maybe. and they're using that to lower the the. Santa the Clara County in California is one thirty. So those aren't nearly as big as now. These are this is the 2020 census, so these are a few years old. But that's not nearly as big. I figured that number would be. 250, not 150. Anyway, go okay. ahead. <laughs> Anyways, I digress. Yeah. Hello, Jim and Chris. What counts as a work reduction for purposes of IRMA? If you're a new listener, IRMA is income-related monthly adjustment amount. It's essentially a surtax on your Medicare premiums. Chris will explain what work reduction is. What counts as a work reduction for purposes of IRMA? After retiring at age 59 and doing massive Roth conversions from age 60 through age 64, could a person work part-time for two weeks in December? I like his train of thought, Chris. Follow this. Could a person work part-time at a job for two weeks in December of the year before they start Medicare and then quit? And claim that's a work reduction. If not, could they work two weeks in December each year from age 60 through 64, then quit and complain uh, and claim a work reduction? Now he's getting a little too greedy. Is there something like this that would work? What is the bare minimum that would qualify each year? For a work reduction. He's trying to use the get out of jail free card. Uh, Chris, why don't you explain a little bit about what he's trying to do and let him know if he's going to be able to do it or not. So essentially, um, Irma, like most people would know if they've listened to the show for a while or done your own research on this, the income related monthly adjustment amount is what that stands for. We usually call it the Medicare premium surcharge applies to you if your modified adjusted gross income is over certain limits. And um, those limits in uh, 2023 were um, for your income in 2021, because you know we also need to tell people that it's the modified adjusted income from two years prior that creates your Medicare premium surcharge in the current year. And if you're collecting or if you're on Medicare in the year of 2023, because I happen to have those numbers right in front of me, as a single person, that limit is $97,000. As a married filing joint couple, it's double that, one ninety-four. So if, you, if you're modified adjusted gross income two years prior, so 2021, you're going to pay more on your Medicare uh, premiums, Part B and Part D uh, premiums. And then there's tiers above that, that, that as you hit them, the surcharge increases. So that's what we're talking about with IRMA. 
where the, quote, get out of jail free card comes in is that Social Security and Medicare, they realized that people who retire might be facing an unfair penalty by being forced to pay a huge surcharge on an income reporting from years when they were maybe working or something else happened, but then something changed, what they call a life-changing event, which led to a reduction of income. And they're allowing you to request that they use not the income from two years ago, but the income from the current year in order to determine your Medicare premium surcharges. So there's two things that have to happen to be granted relief. And the two things that have to happen, you have to have a life-changing event. And the second thing that has to happen, there has to be a reduction in income that was created by the life-changing event. And that reduction of income has to be drastic enough that the new income amount is brings you down to a lower or maybe completely out of the IRMA tiers. Those two things have to happen. Now, the seven reasons for... Um, um, requesting this um, adjustment, if you will, is getting married, getting divorced, having your a spouse pass away, a work stoppage or reduction, which was what he's talking about, loss of income producing property, loss of pension income, or an employer settlement payment. Those are the seven life-changing events they define that if you have one of those that then also leads to a reduction of income, they will consider your request to use a more recent year for their IRMA determination. So what he's trying to do, and I guess I should add one extra little tidbit here. When you're claiming a life-changing event, when one happened, like a work reduction, and your income is reduced because of that, they don't go back and look and decipher what all the income sources you had in the year that you had the life-changing event to either judge you as qualifying or not. And what what I'm alluding to here is if in the year you have the life-changing event, you also did a big Roth conversion, which creates more modified adjusted gross income, they're not going to look at that and say, oh, we see what you're doing. You're trying to get out a jail free card on the Roth conversion and not really your work income. And um, so we're going to disallow this. They under, at least now, until they deem that people are taking advantage of this rule, they don't look back and look at the characteristics of the income in the year that you're trying to say something changed which can allow you to maybe do what he's talking about, which is work a little bit, but do a big old conversion. And then two years later, get out of the IRMA ramifications of that by claiming that you had a work reduction in that year. So they should ignore that year and instead use the recent year, the current year. And he's talking about age 64. That's important because when you're the year you turn 63 and the year you turn 64 are technically going to be the years by default that they use to apply IRMA in your first two years of Medicare eligibility because you become Medicare eligible at 65 and then you'd have it at 66 as well. So the year you turn 63, that 
modified adjusted gross income is going to affect the year that you're first on Medicare at 65, and then year 64 would affect your age 66 year. He's trying to have this little part-time job so that he can create a life-changing event by stopping this work. I have seen nothing anywhere that talks about they only determine the life-changing event is substantial given a certain amount of change or that you worked a certain number of hours before you stopped or things like that. I haven't seen that. I, I suspect in the future... If more people try to do what he's doing, they might that might raise the attention that people are trying to game this a little bit. And they might write in then adjustments to how they apply IRMA and how they uh, maybe grant relief via the SSA 44 request. But right now I've seen no evidence that they examine it in that way. So, you know, his walkthrough, I'm not sure I followed it enough to comment specifically, but... Uh, what I, you know, what I gleaned from what Jim read to me, what he walked through was he was essentially trying to create the life-changing event by intentionally having a part-time job and then, you know, quitting or being let go or what have you. And you could then argue, I had a life-changing event. I had a work stoppage or reduction. And as long as you can document it, that's what they're going to ask for. They want documentation or your sworn statement that it's true. But if you stopped working, I think it'd be pretty easy to to have documentation to share with them, you would have the the uh, work stoppage, and then you would have a reduction of income later on when they compared it to a more recent year. And I think likely they would grant it on the way that the rules are being applied right now. So I, you know, I I kind of think that he's got, um, you know, an opportunity to, uh, you know maybe get out of this. It's not something that is going to work on a rolling basis um, because, for instance, the year he turned 65, it's not like he could work for two weeks and then have a work stoppage because what's going to happen is they'll grant him relief for his age 65 year based on the re- the life-changing event and the work reduction in the the reduced income. But then if he does a big Roth conversion in that year, they're going to look at it and say, well, no, your income wasn't lower. So we're not going to grant you the relief and they're going to apply Irma back on top of you. So it's, it's, it's not something you could do on a rolling basis and get out of annual ongoing Roth conversions by working two weeks and then quitting each year. That's not going to work. But if it was really you're trying to take advantage of the transition where your transition, we all know that your income transition is actually from doing mainly Roth conversions to stopping those conversions. What you're hiding it underneath is your work, working a couple of weeks and then not working is what creates the life changing event. And they don't under current application that I've seen look and examine the characteristics of the income in that year of the life-changing event and try to judge you as not worthy of relief because of what you're clearly trying to do, manipulating the rule. So that's kind of how I see it, the way it was read to me and is described. So I think what he's saying would work in in that transition onto Medicare, but it's not an ongoing get-out-of-jail-free card technique. Yeah, that was always my understanding as well. Mm -hmm. But I'll digress to you and your expertise on it, not not to me. But 
I do know a little bit about IRAs. And this IRA question, I've been anxious to answer it because I don't know if I've ever talked about this before on the show. What? Uh-huh. We talked uh-huh, about uh-huh, darn uh-huh. near every aspect of IRAs. <laughs> I honestly, I may have mentioned it in the past, but I, I don't have any recollection of ever discussing this very, very unique aspect to the ordering rules of Roth distributions. Do you know what I mean by ordering rules of Roth distributions, Chris? Um, I do. Okay. Why don't you share with people the ordering rules of Roth distributions? So by rule, when you take money from a Roth IRA, the money will come out in the following order. First, any contributions you've made will come out. Second, any conversions that you've made will come out. And lastly, any earnings on monies that were held in the Roth will come out. And there's nothing you can do to control that. That is just how it's deemed to happen as you take money out. Okay, you are correct. And if we were to number them, it would be layer one, layer two, layer three. Mm-hmm. Layer one, your contributions. The money you put into a Roth IRA, folks, I don't care what your age is, 16 and a half, 59 and a half, 95 and a half. The money you put in can come out at any time for any reason, no taxes, no penalties. So let's just call that layer one contributions and contributions always come out first. Chris is also correct. Layer two. Layer two is your conversions. So if you convert throughout uh, several years, each conversion has its own five-year rule. I'm not going to get into those. We covered those ad nauseum many, many times. But conversions are the second layer to come out, and they go in the order that they were converted. So a conversion done, say, in um, 2020 comes out first. Then if that's all gone, then the one you did in 2021, then the one in 2022, and the one in 2023, so on and so forth. So the second layer is conversions. And correct, the third layer is the growth. That's the very last thing to come out. And that may or may not be taxable to you and may or may not be subject to a 10% penalty, depending on if it's qualified or not. But what a lot of people don't know, and I don't know if I ever talked about it, is layer two kind of has a 2A as well. And my answer to this next question is going to talk about layer 2A. So a lot of lead in, if you will to a question. I wanted to get to this a couple weeks ago when he first sent it because I was excited. Um, And then Christmas came and and now I want to get through it. But this question came in uh, at the beginning of December. It begins. Let's see if he gives us a hint. No, no hint. Oh, but he does say where he lives. Um, All right, this one, I'm going to give you a hint that if you're a football fan, you would be able to easily get you should be able to guess the state he lives in because he lives in a state 
whose football team is the arch enemy of the Denver Broncos. So is he from if Missouri? If you know the AFC West, you can figure this out. Missouri? What? Well, or, I don't, you, you could I, be right I because say, is, is Kansas City, are they talking about Kansas City, Missouri or Kansas City, Kansas? Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, no, he's in Kansas City. Well, he doesn't Which say if he's Missouri. on the Missouri side or the Kansas okay. side, so well, you might true. be correct. <laughs> he just said, quote-unquote, George from KC. I'm yeah. assuming that stands for Kansas City. But you are right. Um, I guess the answer would be what state is the stadium in? Why don't you Google I think that? we already I'm determined reading. that, and it was on the Missouri side. Oh, it's on the Missouri side. Sure. Okay, so he was from Missouri, so I guess you are correct. All right. It says, hi, Jim and Chris. Thank you for the excellent work you do and the contribution to consumers and other financial planners. I recently read the latest Kitsis article regarding implementation of the backdoor Roth strategy and came across this. So there was an article recently on Kitsis.com about doing the uh, backdoor Roth. So there was a quote in the article and he included the quote here, folks. And this is directly from the article. By virtue of being non-deductible, these funds are now viewed by the IRS as after-tax dollars. What they're talking about here, to add a little bit of context, in the backdoor Roth strategy, you have no IRA at all. Doesn't work if you have an IRA. You have no IRA, but you earn more money then allowed to contribute to a Roth IRA directly. So you contribute after-tax dollars to a traditional IRA. Then you turn around and convert those dollars into a Roth IRA. Now, we don't want to get in this answer, the, the strategy behind Backdoor. We've covered it ad nauseum last year and the year before, and I'm sure next year we're going to talk about it again. But it does not work if you have an existing IRA. So that's what they're talking about here when they say by uh, virtue of being non-deductible, these funds. The article is this, this quote is referencing after-tax dollars that you put into a non-deductible traditional IRA. And then you're going to convert them into a Roth, thereby getting money into a Roth, even if you earned more money that's allowed to contribute them directly. They should just get rid of that earnings rule or close the backdoor Roth loophole. Uh, they haven't done either. So you have to put your money in a non-deductible traditional IRA on Monday and on Tuesday convert it into a Roth and boom, you just got your money into a Roth. So he's asking this question, Chris. By virtue of being non-deductible, the, I mean, the, the quote rather from the article, these funds are now viewed by the IRS as after-tax dollars. The contribution amount or basis can be withdrawn tax-free. Restrictions and penalties on IRA distributions, though, will still apply. Again, ignoring critical vari variables, the second step in the back door is for this tax-free money to be converted, also tax-free, into a respective Roth IRA. So the quote is just, again, explaining what a backdoor Roth is. You're going to make a contribution 
to your traditional IRA, it is considered an after-tax contribution. You're then going to turn around and convert it into a Roth. But because they're only after-tax dollars, you don't have to pay taxes again to get them into the Roth, to convert them into a Roth. So it's kind of a quote-unquote tax-free Roth conversion. I wouldn't really say tax-free, though, at its core, because you had to put after-tax dollars in. You're just not going to be taxed a second time. So here's his question. Once you convert this basis, will it always be considered a contribution? So in other words, if I do a backdoor Roth strategy, am I able to get the original non-deductible IRA contribution that I made and convert it to a Roth outright, excuse me, I'm trying to follow his, then convert it to a Roth outright immediately like I would if I made a regular Roth IRA contribution to get it first out. Let me reread that sentence. It makes no sense to me. I know what he's asking, but it doesn't read correctly. If I do a backdoor Roth, am I able to get the original non-deductible IRA contribution that I then convert to a Roth out immediately like I would if I made a regular Roth IRA contribution? Now it makes sense what he's asking. So what he's asking, Chris, is this. This article references that the IRS considers the money contributed to the traditional IRA, even though it's after tax, they consider it to be a contribution. So if he converts it to a Roth IRA immediately, no growth, just immediately converts it, which is allowed, folks. You don't have to wait a year or six months. You can convert it immediately. That has been proven. That's been put to excuse me, put to rest after the passage of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act in 2017. The IRS effectively put to rest that issue. You can go ahead and do it. So he's saying if it was considered a contribution when it went into my traditional IRA and I converted immediately and there's no growth, would its contribution status still hold once it's a Roth and I can take it out at any time for any reason without taxes and without penalties? What says you, Chris? Are you I, th <laughs> I think I think they could, but That's I must be answer? wrong since you're hesitating. <laughs> well, I so didn't know if there was. We've got an after-tax contribution to the traditional that then got converted to a Roth. Will it There's maintain the... its contribution status? Is what he's asking. Once it's into the Roth now. Will it still maintain a contribution status, meaning it's kind of like a tier one level. Contributions can come out at any time, any reason, no taxes, no penalties. Well, it's technically a con it's technically a conversion rollover. There just is no taxes owed on it because it was after tax basis. So with that, I would better. say it's going to be it's going to be considered to be throw out your first answer right. and run with this. So answer. it's conversion, <laughs> but. 
if you were to turn around and take it out immediately, and he must be worried about it because he's under 59 and a half. So if he takes it out immediately, the conversion clock really has to do with getting the earnings, no, avoiding the 10% penalty issue. So if he's under 59 and a half, he is going to probably have to wait five years now that I walk through it, saying it out loud. I think he would have issues getting it out um, without, you know, waiting through that five-year clock or reaching 59 and a half where it would just go away. Is that what ends up with this tier? You're you're close. You are very, very close. I'll give you a C-plus on that. We never... I don't think I've ever talked about this before. And with all the backdoor Roth conversion discussions we've ever had, we need to start making this part of our repertoire. Chris is correct. His first answer was wrong. His second answer was correct. It is a conversion. So once you do a conversion of contribution dollars, if you will, those dollars are no longer considered contributions. You are correct, Chris. They are considered conversions. They fall into tier two. Chris is also correct when he says tier two dollars. Those after-tax conversions now, tier two is after-tax dollars. It's not growth. It's not pre-tax. That tier two uh, or level two, if you will, on the ordering rules of Roth distributions is also tax-free because you've already paid taxes on it. And Chris is correct, though. It is that tier two has to sit inside your Roth for five years or until you reach 59 and a half, whatever's going to come first, actually. Not whatever's longer, whatever comes first. Because the tier two assets have a 10% early withdrawal penalty assessed to them if they are removed from your Roth before they have sat for five years after being converted or you reach 59 and a half, whatever happens first. So if you converted them at age 58, you can take them out in a year and a half with no 10% penalty. They will always be tax-free. But what about this special layer that I affectionately called tier two and a half, uh, two dash A, or whatever I called it earlier? It is a subset of tier two assets, and that is after tax conversions. Conversions of dollars that have already been taxed can come out tax free and penalty free. But there's a huge caveat. You must first remove all tier two conversions. What do I mean by that? A traditional conversion where it's all pre-tax dollars. You have pre-tax dollars in an IRA, you convert them. So follow me through. I'll give you an example. Let's just say somebody starts converting in 2020 and they convert always 100% pre-tax dollars. And they do it in 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023. So they have four years so far. Make sense, Chris? 
And each conversion was 100% pre-tax dollars. There was no after-tax dollars. And after that last conversion, they have no more money in the IRA. But their earnings are so high, they can't contribute to a Roth on their own. So they're going to do the back door now. Because through this conversions over the past four years, they got all their IRA converted. Just again, this probably never going to happen this way, but follow the logic, folks. So now they do a back door. They put 100% after-tax contribution into a traditional IRA. They turn around the very next day and convert it. That's a tier two asset. And it becomes the conversion done in 2020, what would I say, 20, 2020, 21, 22, 23. So in 2024, they do this. Now we have five layers in level two. Do you follow me so far, Chris? Mm -hmm. Surprisingly. They have, yep. <laughs> they have no contributions in this Roth. Let's just make it easy. There's no tier one assets. They only have tier two assets. But now they want to withdraw Let's just say the, the amounts were $6,000 each year. I'm just making this up. They have essentially five levels of $6,000, folks. The first four levels are all pre-tax conversions. Then they have an after-tax conversion. That's that fifth level. They want to remove that one. They're saying, hey, that, that converted amount is after-tax dollars. I should have never converted it. I need those dollars. I don't know for what, but he needs, he wants to get to them because he already, they're after-tax conversions. Do you know why he wants to get to them? He wants to get to them because there is no 10% penalty assessed on after-tax converted dollars. The 10% penalty is only assessed on pre-tax converted dollars but in order to get that fifth layer that six thousand dollars that would not be subject to a ten percent early withdrawal penalty of six hundred dollars in order to get to that six thousand he has to remove the first four ones above it mm -hmm. he's also got so to remove it. tier one well i said in my example yeah. there's no contributions oh, never okay. contrib sorry but if he did you'd have to burn through all those first and then you'd have right. to eat through tier 2a before you get to tier 2b if that's the, yeah so i that is a nuanced piece of that that i don't think i now that you walked through it i think i've heard that one other time and i didn't recall it clearly to walk through it in my response but um i think you're absolutely right we've never mentioned it on the show on the podcast no. yeah and again if you're over 59 and a half it's a totally moot point because the 10 percent right. early withdrawal penalty doesn't apply to anybody and there's never any taxes assessed on the converted dollars on the growth there might be taxes but the converted dollars themselves are already after tax dollars but this is a special issue when you are converting after tax dollars it has this sub layer if you will on level two so after tax dollars that are converted via a backdoor roth will not have a separate 10 percent early withdrawal penalty assessed to them 
if you withdraw them younger than age 59 and a half and sooner than sitting in the Roth for five years. After you reach 59 and a half or after they've been inside your Roth for five years, this is an entirely moot point. This is such a small subcategory nuance of Roth conversions that few people are ever going to do. Who's going to convert and remove within five years? Why are you converting to begin with? So it's never probably going to be done, but these rules are in place. And when I got this question, I thought, oh, I don't know if I've ever talked about this little sub layer, if you will, of tier two Roth assets. So you can get them out. They, they will not consider them contributions, allowing you to take them out as a tier one asset. They're going to remain a tier two asset, but they're at the bottom of tier two. They're not at the top of tier two. You have to take the converted amounts out first that will be subject to the 10% early withdrawal penalty before you can get to the converted assets that will not be subject to the 10% early withdrawal penalty, even if you withdraw them sooner than five years or age 59 and a half. So that's kind of the little tidbit that a lot of people didn't know. After-tax dollars that are converted will not be assessed a 10% early withdrawal penalty. You just can't get them until you do all the converted withdrawals that will be subject to the 10% early withdrawal penalty. Hopefully this cool. makes sense to people. You got, if, if you don't know much about conversions, you're confused as hell right now. Yeah, but if this, you follow yeah. conversions, you, you understand what Chris and I are saying. Yeah, this is certainly not the topic you'd want to start on and trying to understand backdoor Roth conversions. conversions. No. Yeah. You need to understand conversions to get this down right. Anyways, I wanted to get that answer because I thought it was kind of a cute question. Okay. All right. Um, this one is is pretty good. It's an annuity question. It's asking several questions about annuities, but I thought it would be a nice one for us to, to answer. Um, I actually guessed this before I read his answer. But it's a it's a tough one to do, so I'm just going to to give the answer. He says, I live in a state that is surrounded by seven states, and the first letter of each of the states that surround us are O, W, V, T, M, I, and I. And then he says, Jim, don't look at a map. I didn't need to look at a map. I don't want you to sit there and try to figure this all out. It's Kentucky. Is it, I was going to say, isn't it Kentucky? I got that one. Okay. And what gave it away is the seven states. Yeah. Seven states. And as you went through them, I'm waiting for the missing one. And K never came up. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. And, yeah, that'll work. Because Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, Tennessee. Okay. All righty. So um, here we go. I have several questions about annuities. You talk about the difference between buying an annuity and annuitizing an annuity. Buying a noun, folks, and turning that noun into a verb. That's exactly what he said. An annuity is just a noun. It's a thing. It's an insurance product. Annuitization is an action, a verb. It's where you tell the insurance company, hey, I bought this product from you called an annuity. It's a noun. It's a thing. And I have my money in it. But I now want to do an action to that noun. I want to annuitize it. That's a verb. 
And that's where you tell the insurance company, don't give me my money anymore. Just give me a lifetime stream of guaranteed income that I cannot outlive. Okay, why would anyone buy an annuity if you're not going to annuitize it? That's his first question. You often talk about buying an annuity and annuitizing an annuity, he's saying. Why would anyone just want to buy an annuity if they're not going to ultimately annuitize it in the future? It's a very good question because every annuity has the ability, it has to have the ability, to be turned into a guaranteed stream of lifetime income. It's just each annuity will pay a different amount and may guarantee that stream differently. But every annuity will offer the ability to annuitize it. And you no longer have access to the money. You just have access to a lifetime stream of income. Well, there's many reasons, listener, why people would want to buy an annuity without turning the the noun into a verb, not turning it into the action. First of all, you are not ever required in an annuity to annuitize it, at least at first. You will get to a point in time, usually, every annuity has this, is called the annuitization date, where they will annuitize that annuity, come hella high water. So in a roundabout way, listener, everyone who buys an annuity has agreed to annuitize it. Because it must be annuitized on the annuitization date. It's just that that annuitization date is usually between 85 and 95. Every insurance company is a little bit different. Might be even some that go to age 100, but I'm not certain on that. Most will be between 93 and 95. That if you keep the annuity for that long, they will forcefully annuitize it. Now, they're never going to do it without your permission, or at least without warning you several times via letters that this is going to happen. So, in a roundabout way, listener, everyone, when you buy an annuity, has agreed to annuitize it. It's just that you don't have to do it until very, very, very long into the future, especially if you're buying the annuity in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, or even 70s. You're not going to be forced to annuitize it probably to around 93 to 95, although I have seen others, as I said, earlier than 93. And I I would assume there's some companies that might even go longer than 95. All right. There's another reason you might want to buy an annuity. You might want to buy an annuity for tax management. The money inside an annuity does grow tax deferred, does not grow tax free. So if you're trying to optimize your situation, perhaps for ACA premium tax credits, we've done this many times with people we're working with. They have money that's generating interest and dividends. It's after-tax money. It's generating interest and dividends. Those interest and dividends are screwing them out of getting ACA premium tax credits or at least the biggest credits that they want to try to optimize themselves for. So by putting those dollars temporarily inside an annuity, we can uh, defer, if you will, the realization of the 
interest and dividends when they received inside an annuity, so it does allow people to optimize for ACA premium tax credits. You might also want people, and we do this and see this a lot, people buying annuities for another guarantee that the insurance companies give, and that's a principal guarantee that you'll always get your money back. Now, this won't hold true in an annuity called a variable annuity. You can lose money in those annuities. But in a fixed annuity, you don't lose money in them. The insurance company will protect your principal and they'll pay you a stated amount of interest. We talk openly on this podcast about a special type of annuity called a multi-year guaranteed annuity or MIGA for short. That's kind of the insurance company's version of a bank CD. You can get them from, uh, sadly, there are now one-year MIGAs. There's a couple of companies now offering one-year MIGAs. I say sadly. uh, It's not really worth the effort to open them, folks. The interest rates, you can get better interest rates in a bank CD. But they have one-year MIGAs, two-year MIGAs. We generally favor in our practice three-, four-, and five-year MIGAs. And you can pretty much go all the way up to 10 years. There may be companies offering them beyond 10 years, but generally speaking now, one through 10 years. And for that stated number of years, the insurance company will guarantee a stated value of interest. So there's another reason why people might buy an annuity without any intention of annuitizing it, any attention of taking the action and making that noun a verb, unless they live long enough, as I said, well into their 90s. But at face value, they have no intention of ever annuitizing. So I think I answered that part of his question, okay? Is there anything you want to add, uh, Chris? Uh, No, I think that's a good start, yeah. Okay. Now, question two, what do interest rates have to do with annuities? I thought you buy an annuity and get a certain payout, and that's it. At least with single premium immediate annuities, that's what I have heard. What interest rates have to do with annuities is exactly what you said in in a roundabout way. Let's look at a single premium immediate annuity. That's an annuity that immediately does the verb, right, Chris? Well, within the You're buying a noun that's immediately Mm -hmm. verbalized. Correct. So we call it in our practice speedization, (laughs) even though that's not a word. Annuitization is, we call it speatize. We're going to buy a single premium immediate annuity. We're going to speatize it. Those dollars are immediately annuitized. You don't have access to them. Instead, you get a guaranteed stream of lifetime income. Where do interest rates come into this? Well, every annuity payout in a payout phase in an annuitized annuity. You no longer have access to the money. You have access to income. Those payments are comprised of three different elements, a return of your own principal, a return of interest, and that's where interest rates come into play, folks, and a return of mortality credits or money from everyone else who died before you in your annuity pool. So every payment has those three elements. Principal, interest, and mortality credits. Where do interest rates fit in? Well, if interest rates are higher when you buy your single premium immediate annuity rather than lower, you get more money. It's not rocket science. If interest rates are higher, you're going to get higher lifetime guaranteed stream of income than you would if interest rates were lower. 
But one, but once you buy it, that's locked in. So locked maybe in. that's yes. what they're worried about: is that interest rates could then affect those future payments? That's not true. It affects the at annuitization. It's going to be factored in, but then that is locked in for you for the lifetime of those income payments. Right. Remember, when you annuitize, you pass all risk on to the insurance company. You pass your longevity risk on to the insurance company, and the insurance company accepts interest rate risk because they will assume that they will earn whatever their current prevailing interest rates are that they are assessing. So if interest rates are, quote unquote, high when you buy it and they drop throughout your retirement, the insurance company, even though they're not going to be earning as much money on those dollars as they originally projected, they eat that loss because they have to guarantee you the income that they promised you. Conversely, I guess one could say you do assume some risk in the sense if you bought an annuity, uh, say, at age 75, and interest rates at age 80 were significantly higher, your payments don't increase. So that's, I guess, a little bit of risk that you have assumed. But it kind of locks like a picture. You take a picture, snap, the picture's taken. It locks that moment in time. When you buy that annuity, when you annuitize the annuity, it's like you took a picture of mortality, current interest rates, and your principal. Just locking those in, mortality being the mortality credits that I alluded to. So that's uh, where interest rates come into play. Okay, and finally, how are annuities taxed? If I buy an annuity with IRA funds, I assume all my payouts will be taxable. Is that correct? It is, uh, unless you're buying them inside a Roth IRA. Then all your annuity payments would be tax-free because they're coming out of a Roth IRA. But if you buy an annuity inside a traditional IRA and you annuitize it, we like to call traditional IRAs in our practice always taxable accounts because you're always going to pay income taxes on the distributions. Now, I'll pause there and, yes, put a little asterisk next to that. You could have some after-tax basis, and that would be returned tax-free. So we do concede that when I say always taxable doesn't necessarily mean it's every single dollar is always taxable, but few people have after-tax basis inside IRAs. Um, but I do want to make that little concession that there could be some dollars that would be considered a return of after-tax uh, principal in a traditional IRA. So the IRA taxation rules will apply to annuities. But then he asks, but what if I don't buy it in an IRA? What if I use after-tax funds to buy my annuity? Will all payments be tax-free for me for life that way? Chris, do you want to burst his bubble? Yes. Well, I don't want to, <laughs> but I'm going to. <laughs> it has to be done. So when you buy an annuity outside of a retirement account, so with just regular money from your bank account, or maybe you sell things out of your brokerage account, what have you, and you buy it, the payments, as Jim mentioned, the payments to you are going to be a combination of a return of your own money, as well as interest and mortality credits that they are granting to you as part of the contract. And that is what determines the, the yearly payment or monthly payment that you're going to get from that annuity for the rest of your life. 
Well, they, through a calculation that they make on their end, are going to determine what portion of each annual payment being made to you is a return of your own money versus, in effect, a form of earnings on top of that. So the payments over uh, the life of that annuity will start out with a partial return of your premium that you paid in as well as some earnings. And they'll tell you, and it's called an exclusion ratio, they'll tell you how much of this payment can be excluded from your taxes because it is a return of your principal. And then you can exclude that because it's your own money being given back to you. However, if you live long enough to collect payments from that annuity, such that you have eventually received all of your principal back, which if you live long enough, you will get eventually all your principal back, the day that that happens, the year that that happens, every payment thereafter is 100% taxable because it's no longer a return of any of your premium. It is all earnings that they're paying to you in the form of interest and mortality credits and the insurance company's money, in other words, and that would be taxable. So that's how that's going to work in a what's called a non-qualified annuity that's outside of retirement account structure and is... Uh, being bought with those types of dollars. Perfect. And just so you know, listener, the I, excuse me, yeah, the IRS mandates the insurance company tracks the exclusion ratio. Yeah. You are not allowed to determine your own exclusion ratio. So all you VG engineers who love writing Excel spreadsheets for anything, you can't do your own spreadsheet. You can't come up with your own mortality tables and assumed current interest rate and decide for yourself what the exclusion ratio is. You can't argue it with the insurance company. I mean, you can try. It's not going to get you anywhere. What the insurance company sets as their exclusion ratio is what will hold. And the IRS mandates the insurance company track the return of your principal. And when all your principal has been returned, that they change your 1099 from an exclusion ratio. Let's just say it's a 70-30 exclusion ratio to make that up. 70% is considered a tax-free return of your principal each payment. And 30% is considered the taxable mortality credits and interest. Mortality credits are not received tax-free. Interest is not received uh, tax-free. Once the insurance company has deemed all of your money has been returned. Your 1099 is going to show the entire annuity payment is now taxable. And when I say taxable, income taxable. Yeah. So the uh, exclusion ratio is beneficial early because you're going to be able to exclude some of it from taxes. But ultimately, an annuity payment is a lifetime stream of guaranteed income. So just like Social Security and just like pension. And those are also received and you pay taxes on them. Now, I concede Social Security, 15% uh, of it right now could still be received tax-free, although I think that will go the way of the dodo bird within the next five years because they have to address Social Security's underfunding within another five to six years maximum. So I do think Social Security will be fully taxable in the future. Pensions may be tax-free. I will concede that, if you, especially if you're a government employee or a military person. Uh, if you were injured on duty uh, as a police officer, you can get a tax-free pension. I know military can get some tax-free pensions. But outside of that little nuance of, quote-unquote, tax-free pensions, most pension payments are also fully taxable. 
So the fact that an annuity, whether it's inside an IRA or not inside an IRA, is going to be taxable to you shouldn't come uh, as a shock and shouldn't be a reason not to annuitize. If you need that lifetime stream of guaranteed income to help protect your minimum dignity floor, to help the younger you make the promise, the explicit promise to the older you that their minimum dignity floor is going to be protected forever, you might want to consider that income annuity and don't say, oh, it's going to be taxable. I'm not going to do it. Well, pretty much a lot of lifetime streams of guaranteed income is taxable. Okay. Anyways, I think that wraps us up for 2023, unless yep. you think we have time for another one, and no. I will do another one. Unfortunately, that's going to wrap the show and the the year for us of 2023. So, Oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. He did ask at the very end, P.S., I'm a very new listener, and I've never heard of an explanation of why everyone is called George. Can you explain? I think we just explained that recently, didn't we? We did, but that'll you be just, a good, yeah. good way to wrap it i'll play the audio and people will recognize it and then we'll bow out so this is why just what i always wanted my own little bunny rabbit i will name him george and i will hug him and pet him and squeeze him i'm not a bunny rabbit there you go don't know what that is <laughs> look up <laughs> that's the, looney that's tunes the uh, bugs bunny abominable bugs snowman bunny. yes yeah I said the penis just now. I don't know why I did that. That is Bugs Bunny, absolutely. But uh, thanks, listener, for sending in that question. And thanks for everybody who uh, played along this year and sent us in questions. We hope to continue doing this many, many years into the future. We can't get to every single question. That is an unfortunate aspect. We both have jobs that we have to do, and we don't have enough time to dedicate uh, for the amount of questions we get. But uh, don't let that dissuade you. Send us in a question. If it's a good one, hopefully we'll get to it. And uh, we, I look forward, at least I'm sure you do, Chris, for another uh, splendid year of the Retirement and IRA show. Yep, sounds good. If you want to send in your own questions, send them to Jim directly. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. That's jimhelps.com if you're a new listener. And uh, put in the subject line that there's a question for the show, and hopefully we'll get to your question in the coming year here. So, Jim, you have a uh, happy New Year's Eve, and uh, I'm sure you and I will talk soon because that's kind of what we do. Everyone else have a (laughs) safe ending to your 2023, and we'll talk to you first thing 2024 next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556. 
The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 